Good snowy morning. My name is Merle Flenner, member of the council here. And this morning we'll be re reading out of Psalm 37, verses 3 through 9. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret yourself not. It tends only to evil, for evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. All right, thank you, Merle. You guys can take a seat. Make sure I'm working. You got me loud enough there? There we go. Good snowy morning. Right, can I still say Merry Christmas? Okay, Merry Christmas, the faithful few who have made it in. No, I'm kidding. Hi, everybody, live stream. Glad you can join us. Thankful for the wonders of modern technology. So how was everybody's Christmas? Everybody have a good time? Did you get everything you wanted for Christmas this year? Last year, I didn't. Let me tell you about it. So we, usually we go up to Portland um, after Christmas Eve service and everything is over. We finally get some time off, and uh, we'll go visit my parents, and we'll do a Christmas up there. And you know, as it goes with the parents, you always get the best presents from the parents. And, and there was this thing that I was really, really wanting that year, and I was sure, you know, my parents were going to get it for me, or maybe they were going to go in together with some of my other siblings and get it. And... Uh, so we're opening the presents, and it's one of those things that it, it, it would be kind of weird and hard to wrap, so I'm expecting it to be, like, hidden in the closet, you know? So we're, we're getting through all the gifts. Oh, that's nice. Oh, that's nice. Oh, that's nice, you know? And, and, then, and then I hear the, those, those amazing words. Oh, wait, there's one more present. I'm thinking, this is it. Yes, this is it. And they, they come out with this massive black toolbox, which is not what I wanted. And the funny thing is that I have used that toolbox. It's a, it's a big ratchet set with some other Allen wrenches and stuff in it. I have used that toolbox more than I think anything in my garage, like in the last year. I swear I've opened that toolbox every single week for something. And I cannot for the life of me remember what it was that I was wanting instead of that. But I felt, you remember? <laughs> Don't tell me, it ruins it. But I felt so ridiculous, because here I am, a 30-year-old man, disappointed that I didn't get something I was looking forward to for Christmas. Oh, that's a nice toolbox. Thank you. And I'm thinking, what are you, 12? Come on, dude. This is great. Well, that's, I don't know if that's comforting or not, Nancy. <laughs> You're bumming me out. Whatever it was, don't tell me, it couldn't have been that important, because I don't remember what it was. How often do you think you know what you need? I'm going to spoil it for you, not as often as you think. 
But it's hard, right? Because we read a passage like Psalm 37, particularly verse 4, where it says, the Lord will give you the desires of your heart. And, and we think, well, how are we supposed to read that passage in a modern context, in a very affluent country in which we live? We've got the luxury of pretty much being able to acquire most of the desires of our heart by our own means. I mean, I can go to Costco and buy most of the desires of my heart in bulk. Just down the road. Like, literally, if I stand on my roof, I can see Costco. <laughs> so we need to step into the context in which Psalm 37 was written. It was written by King David about 500 years after the Israelites encountered God on Mount Sinai. So they've been in the Promised Land for a while now. And that was, if you remember, that was where they received the Ten Commandments. That was where they received the Mosaic Covenant between them and God. God was basically saying, it's, it's really long, it's like all of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but basically, I will be your God, you will be my people, you will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, there's not going to have to be any separation or division between us because we're going to dwell in harmony, I'm going to take you into a beautiful land that's rich and full, flowing with milk and honey, among many, many other promises. So the Israelites get that covenant, that, that relationship begins rockily, if you remember there's Literally minutes after that covenant was established, there was the whole golden calf incident. So it didn't start great, but still they journeyed from the mountain, then they have to wander for 40 years. They get to the edge of the promised land, and Moses gives this final speech, which is basically the entirety of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is basically just one big speech. And uh, there's this warning that he gives in Deuteronomy 8. It's a little bit long. It'll be on the screen, but it's really fascinating, starting in verse 11 of Deuteronomy 8. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God." And then at the end of Deuteronomy, in chapter 32, Moses teaches them a song. Um, and it basically goes like this. Yeah, so you guys are, I promise you're going to forget God. And when you do, and everything goes wrong because you guys are hopeless, repent and return and he will restore you. But it's going to happen over again. And just, just expect that to happen. It's not exactly the pep talk you'd expect to hear before entering into a brave new land full of promise. He basically promises them that they're going to fail. So, fast forward 500 years, you've got the books of the Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, 
and then you've also got Judges, and all these different books are documenting the ways in which Israel failed to fully drive the people out of the land, to claim the promises, to obey God. And so they've been going through this cycle over the last 500 years where they get oppressed by enemies because of the judgment of God. And then they cry out for God to deliver them, and then God raises up a deliverer in the form of a judge or a king or a prophet, and he saves them. They come back to covenant faithfulness for, I don't know, somewhere between 30 and 80 years, depending on which time frame it was. And even then, it wasn't always full faithfulness, but at least something. And and so this has been going on for 500 years by the time we get to the context of Psalm 37. And so David writes this psalm as a worship song meant for Israelites to use in the temple to call to remembrance that Mosaic covenant over 500 years ago. I mean, the people that are now reading Psalm 37 in its original context were probably 18, 19 generations removed from being in uh, Mount Sinai in the wilderness, encountering God personally. And it's a reminder that the people need to uh, focus on Yahweh being the source of all good things, that the land is not what gives them the good things. It's Yahweh blessing the land because of covenant faithfulness. And so David references four main promises of the Mosaic Covenant in Psalm 37. We're going to go over them briefly. Uh, The first is that of land. Merle read this one verse. We'll read it again. Verse 9 of Psalm 37. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Uh, Theme of land carries deep connections all throughout the Old Testament. Land is this repeated thing that always references promise of blessing and, and more importantly, dwelling with the Lord in a particular place in perfect relationship. And um, we see that like in Exodus 6, God promises Moses, even before they leave Egypt, this is thousands of years before Psalm 37, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And again in Leviticus 20, you shall inherit the land and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. This theme of land most significantly harkens back to the Garden of Eden. That was the original land in which we were to dwell in perfect harmony with the Lord. That was the intention. And if you remember the construction of the tabernacle, when the Lord gives Moses instructions on how to build the tabernacle, he's really, really specific. I mean, there's like, what, 15 chapters at the end of Exodus and a bunch in Leviticus on specifically like how many pomegranates to carve on each pillar and how many things to weave into and which colors to use. And you're just going, why in the world does he care so much? Well, the reason is because the imagery on the tabernacle was supposed to call to remembrance what Eden would look like and to be this hope and this calling forth of, if you continue to pursue me and be in right relationship with me, we can restore that Edenic dwelling together with the Lord and people in perfect harmony. And while this tabernacle was beautiful, and the subsequent temple was also beautiful and had some of the same imagery, it's, it was only ever a temporary thing, and it was always meant to call to remembrance the faithfulness of God and the covenant relationship that was there that they were supposed to maintain. It pointed to an end goal of a pure and holy people, eternally dwelling in his unveiled presence in a good and fruitful land. And so when you, say, when you see land in Old Testament, don't think just physical place to enjoy pleasures. It often means as well the idyllic setting in which to dwell with God in perfect relationship. This leads into our second covenantal theme we see in Psalm 37, which is that of provision. This one's somewhat interwoven with land because a lot of provisions come from the land on which you're dwelling. Um, But it's specifically referencing that it's the sovereignty of God 
by which the land is producing these things. It's by his hand directly. Um, in verse 4, which we'll get to later, he says, he will give you the desires of your heart. In verse 19, it says, in the days of famine, they who trust in the Lord have abundance. And the Mosaic Covenant is filled with these promises of abundant provision and, and physical blessing. If we go back to Deuteronomy 8, just a couple verses before that large section that I read, in verse 7 it says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water, of fountains and springs, flowing out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, and you shall eat and be full. And who doesn't want to live in a place like that? Sounds like the Rogue Valley, actually. <laughs> God is a good father, and he desires to lavish abundant blessings of food and sources of beauty and joy upon his children to enjoy. He will not forsake the needs of those in covenant relationship with himself. So if any Israelite at the time of King David is wondering why they're lacking something, they can look to the Mosaic Covenant and realize, you know what, if, if I don't have what I need, that probably means there's something off between me and God. There's something in that covenantal relationship is broken because we know the nature of God. He is always faithful. He always goes on his word. He always does what he says he's going to do. And so the problem has got to be me and my relationship with God. Closely linked to these two, land and provision, is the third covenantal theme you see repeated all throughout Psalm 37, which is that of protection. And there's a lot of verses focusing on this one. I won't go over all of them, but in verse 6 we read, he will bring forth your righteousness and your justice, or in the last two verses of Psalm 37, I think it's mentioned like five times, I'm going to read it because it's really cool, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord, he is their stronghold in the time of trouble, the Lord helps them and delivers them, he delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. These are all some really close parallels to more covenant language that you see, uh, such as in Leviticus 26, where God promises to give peace in the land, none shall make you afraid. He will remove harmful beasts from the land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And this promise of protection is particularly significant because if you look at the history of the Israelites, I mean, they have been oppressed and attacked from all sides for by this time, literally thousands of years. I mean, they were 400 years in Egypt toiling under slavery, and then when they got out, there was a whole bunch of nations they had to go around and avoid and have the protection of the Lord while they wandered in the wilderness. And then by the time they actually got to um, the promised land, remember they send spies in, and like, like 50 guys go in, and only two come back with a positive report, and the rest are the thing is, is the rest are giving a truthful report. There are giants in the land. There are mighty nations. There's Jericho with massive walls, and there's many cities like that. So when they come back and report that they're fearful, it's not wrong. It's just devoid of the knowledge of the protection that the covenant relationship with God provides. And so only Jacob and Caleb actually, you see, have faith in that covenant relationship that the Lord will actually be faithful to protect as they enter this new land. So in much the same way as provisions, as you see throughout the 500 years up to David's reign, the issues that the Israelites have with so many other um, enemies, like the Philistines, has to do directly with their covenant unfaithfulness and the Lord's bringing judgment upon them. And so uh, you can see all throughout the books between Deuteronomy and Psalms, 
every single instance that that happens, it's directly because the people were unfaithful, their hearts turned to other gods, they started to worship idols, they started to, you know, choose something else other than God. Now, I do want to give them a little bit of credit because I think sometimes it's, it's hard for us, especially in the modern context, to think of idolatry. Like, honestly, would you really be so stupid to think that you, like, you would get fooled by a golden cow as opposed to the living God who was shaking the mountain that the cow was sitting at the base of? But the reality is this was a whole lot more practical than I think we realize. I mean, when they get into the land and they start maybe not having enough food because they're not being very covenant faithful, well, their first reaction is, well, maybe, maybe God isn't that good. Huh, the, uh, the Amorites' God of, of rain seems to bring rain for them. Let's, let's try him. And so there's this immense practicality behind their worship. They're not so much interested in the relationship as they are interested in getting what they think they need. And so this idolatry is more of a means to an end. It's not the fact that I, I want to worship some other God. It's I want to get what I need and maybe that God will provide it, because this one doesn't seem to be doing it for me. So it's not throw them totally under the bus. I think we do the exact same thing, just not with actual golden animals. And the fourth and final covenant theme that we, thie, we, we, thie, we see is that of an enduring heritage or lineage. In verse 18 of Psalm 37, we see that the blameless's heritage will remain forever. Or in verse 28, that the saints are preserved Forever. And this, again, ties closely with the first theme of land. These are all very, very interwoven. Um, but that it's this eternal inheritance. That's what Eden is supposed to be, this place where generation after generation after generation of people dwell in perfect harmony with God. And God promises that the fruit of their wombs will be prosperous, their children will flourish and multiply, and they will continue to participate in covenant relationship forever. Back in Deuteronomy, again, in chapter 3, Uh, 30, verse 5, we read this. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your offspring. Those of you who are grandparents, is there anything you could want more in life or that would bring more peace to your soul than seeing your grandchildren prosper and flourish in the Lord, but also materially, that, that, that they're provided for and that the namesake will continue, the lineage will continue. The Mosaic Covenant is the greatest inheritance that any parent could leave for any child. You're leaving them in the hands of the Almighty God who is good and faithful. an eternal heritage is a powerful promise and hope, especially for Israelites who are, like I said before, 18, 19 generations removed from actually encountering the mountain. I mean, I would imagine, I know they believe the story, but I would imagine that being that far removed from actually encountering God on Mount Sinai, it could almost be like this foregone fairy tale by this point. Oh yeah, apparently my great, 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 great grandfather saw God and he shook a mountain and there was smoke but I imagine after that much time, just the impact of that would have lessened by then. I mean, it, the people who saw it firsthand were like three seconds later worshiping a golden calf, so I can't imagine how hard it would be 18 generations later to believe in that story and have such faith that in the midst and in the middle of conflict and fear of the enemies and the stuff that's around you to be able to actually trust in that God. David wrote Psalm 37, you remember, after Israel had already received the land. 
They had already experienced God's blessing and protection and provision. They already have, like I said, 18 generations of heritage of somewhat faithfully following the Lord, but people continue to turn back, and another generation turns to the Lord, and it seems he continues to be proving himself faithful. They had everything they wanted, and yet they were still led astray. And I think this is a potent reminder that though all these things are nice, land, provision, protection, heritage, they're just, they're not ultimate things. The end goal was always to dwell in the presence of God forever in relationship, not simply having that day's fleeting needs met. And this is why Psalm 37.4, which is one you're probably all familiar with, is likely one of the most abused and misused verses in possibly all of the Psalms. I mean, the fact that the Lord will give you the desires of your heart if you delight in Him, it sounds enticing, but that it isn't the keys to a cosmic vending machine where I can just delight in the Lord and then take my pick. D3, happy life. Okay. A lot of gospel and prosperity preachers out there that will tell you that that's how that works, but it's not. But it also doesn't mean, and I've heard this taught from other well-meaning pastors in the past, that the Lord will take away your old desires and give you new desires, as if you're just this vessel to be manipulated and, and messed with. Now, hear me out. This may be true on occasion. I have definitely heard stories of people who have had certain sins or certain desires taken away the moment they were saved, and, and something does radically change. But that's not the experience for most of us. And that's not something I would say people can expect when they become a Christian, when they start following Jesus. And I know for myself, I've had to wrestle with some guilt and some shame over that, because I used to believe that. Like, if I'm truly a Christian, why am I not, like, instantly changed? Why do I still desire that thing? Even as a young kid, I I knew I was a Christian, but I still desired to sin. I still desired to do things that I shouldn't. And so even the simple fact that, like, I would rather watch football when I get home after church than read my Bible or pray, it just, well, that can't be right, because if I was a real Christian... If I really loved God, the only thing I'd want to do is read my Bible and pray 24-7, 365. And there were moments I remember it actually called into question my salvation for myself. Like, if I don't truly love God more than anything else and always want to be in the Word, am I even a Christian? Shouldn't God have replaced all of my earthly desires with heavenly, lofty, floaty ones by now? So I want to be really clear and careful because that's not what 37.4 means either. Rather, what verse 4 means is that if you desire the Lord and take delight in Him, the things that He gives you will satisfy you more than anything else could. I want to repeat that. If you desire the Lord and take delight in Him, the things that He gives you, which includes relationship with Himself, absolutely, but it's more than that. Everything that He gives you will satisfy you more than anything else could, or if you acquired those same things by your own means. And that's really hard to believe for us Americans who take a lot of pride in pulling up by our bootstraps. It's not that you instantly no longer desire wealth or earthly pleasures or good things, but only read your Bible and play and float on a cloud with a harp all day. But that over time, the way God satisfies those desires in his timing, in his goodness, in his wisdom, that will be more fulfilling and long-lasting than if you were to attempt to satisfy those desires on your own by striving and toil and work and cunning and whatever else you think you have going your way. 
the covenant relationship between you and God together with his good things together will be more satisfying than those things on their own. And this is because God is the creator. He's inextricably linked to all created things. And the only way to fully enjoy and benefit from created things is in relation to the creator and the giver. You look like you don't believe me, so I'm going to give you an example. This is why we open presents together at Christmas. You can imagine if we wrapped up all the Christmas presents and then put them in each individual room, and then when everybody wakes up in the morning, they just keep their door closed and open all their presents. And, Thanks, Mom, for this, Michael. You're welcome. And just, I mean, what kind of fun would that be? Just Christmas alone together in your own room? That'd be no fun. You miss out seeing the joy of their faces lighting up and experiencing the thank yous and the excitement and all that comes with it. Or what do we say when, when a gift is late or a card is late or maybe the gift wasn't as good as we had hoped or it broke before you opened it? It's the thought that counts, right? What does that mean? That means the relational intention is more important than the actual material thing. It doesn't make the material thing insignificant. It means that the material thing itself carries more weight than the value of it. There's a relational element to all material things. Even among human relationships, we understand that. So how much more important is it for us to understand for the giver of life? And so I'm not trying to downplay the importance of things either. I'm not saying we should all be stoic and own nothing and sit in an empty room. I mean, we all want land to be where the Lord wants us to be. We all want provisions to have everything we need for enjoying life. We all want protection to live long and not suffer. And we all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, to have a heritage, a lineage that that moves on. These are good things that God created for you to desire and to enjoy. But there's this other little well-meaning bit of terrible theology floating around that goes like this. If you were in an empty room, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, if you were in an empty white room and nothing but Jesus was in there, you'd have all you need. That's also well-meaning. It's a nice sentiment. But I'm going to argue it's just plain wrong. You were created and designed to be in relationship with people. You were given a tongue that tastes delicious flavors, nerves that feel the warm sun and the cold snow, which is so distracting right now. I just want to watch it fall. This is so rare. I need blinders. You have a complex set of emotions. You feel love, humor, happiness, excitement, surprise. I mean, life with God is a rich, multifaceted sensory experience. And it's designed to be enjoyed with other people in the presence of God. And these things are designed to move us to worship and to praise God and give him all honor and glory for his perfect goodness and kindness. That's what the snow is doing for me. I'm worshiping him for creating something so cool. I wish he'd bring it more often. He knows I don't. And I think King David understood this really well when he wrote Psalm 37. And I think it's his effort to call the Israelites back into covenant faithfulness and relational intimacy with God. But the problem they faced and the problem that we still face today goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve choosing to say, nah, I don't want you to be God. I want to be God. Thanks for your stuff, but uh, I think I'm going to take it from here. And the Israelites and every single human being ever since has done the exact same thing. And when you divorce the experience of the created things from the Creator, They no longer serve their original purpose of drawing us in with thanksgiving and joy into a deeper relationship with their creator. 
The problem is not that we need stuff. The problem is that we think we know what we need and in what quantities and when. And when those things fail to satisfy, we blame God for not being good enough, and we start looking elsewhere for satisfaction, or we start vying for control of our own, just like the Israelites in their repeated cycle of idolatry. And so we know, of course, on this side of the resurrection, it took Jesus dying on the cross to finally make a way to break that vicious cycle. However, Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 17. Turn there. Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The law was always meant to be a means of revealing sin, but also of defining the terms of the relationship between Jesus and God. We can get this notion that Jesus came down and abolished the law and we don't have to obey it anymore. Actually, technically we do. The law was not bad, and Jesus did not make the law void. Jesus fulfilled the covenant. He didn't get rid of the law so that now you can relate to God however you want to, because now there's no rules apply, and you can just pick and choose your own God and define the relationship your way. But he fulfilled those requirements perfectly, so that through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, atoning for our sin and our rebellion and our continuous attempts to make the relationship our own way— We have free access to all of those blessings and those benefits that the covenants promise, which includes being in right relationship with God. But most importantly, of course, being actually dwelling with the Almighty above all the other things, but all the other things we've talked about as well, land, possessions, protection, heritage. And I don't know why we do this, but somehow I think that because... Jesus, I don't know if you ever think this way, I have before, because Jesus made us right with God and fulfilled the covenant, the relationship is just automatically healthy. Like, Jesus checked the relationship box, now I believe in Jesus and I do my own thing, because that's checked. I've got the fire insurance, I'm right with God. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people who think they're Christians just assume they're right with God, or just assume they have a good relationship because they said a prayer once, or they got baptized at church camp 20 years ago. Or maybe who even attend church most Sundays, but Monday through Saturday look nothing like a follower of Christ. We think the bare minimum effort is all that is necessary for a good relationship with God, as if that would work in any other relationship. Try that in your marriage. Don't, because it won't be good. But even those of us who do have a good relationship with God, who are actively seeking the Lord, which I pray is every one of you here, when do we usually realize that like our prayer life has started to lax and we probably need to get reading the Bible more? Is it when stuff is going well? Not normally. When stuff starts going wrong, when needs start going unmet. Oh yeah, I haven't prayed in a while. Maybe that's why everything's going wrong. And this isn't a wrong response either. I'm not trying to say that that shouldn't be something 
that we do. I mean, Jesus even encourages his disciples when he teaches them the Lord's Prayer a little bit later in Matthew. He teaches them to pray for everything you could possibly need, ask for everything, even though the Lord already knows it. Why is that? It's because Jesus is emphasizing the relationship. He's not saying the things you're asking for are unimportant. He's saying the relationship is more important and the source of those things. And you want it, he, God wants to hear from you. He wants to be in relationship with you. He wants you to acknowledge that he is the source of all that is good and keep that at the forefront of our mind. But I find particularly for those of us who live in a well-off, affluent nation like America, where most of our needs are met by our own paychecks, it becomes so easy to lose sight of the fact that everything in our life is a gift from God provided directly by his hand. And I think we're actually missing out on the most satisfying part of experiencing those good gifts, which is loving, knowing, and being loved by the living God, our Heavenly Father. And it causes us to work and to strive and to toil for these things instead of just resting at peace, knowing that God of the universe loves us and will provide everything that we need by his good pleasure and his wisdom. I want to wrap up in Matthew 6. We'll read a couple different versions of it. It'll be up on the screen. Matthew 6, 31 through 33. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I really like the wording of the NLT, so I had that version put up here as well. These things dominate the thoughts of the unbelievers. That's really true. For me, that word dominate, I found that to be true. You just get obsessed with something, and your every waking moment is just dwelling. How can I get more of that thing? How can I acquire more of that thing? How can I spend more time doing that thing? But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Unbelievers wear themselves out trying to gain and acquire and it all ends up being useless toil. Solomon says, I think it's in Ecclesiastes, it's, it's meaningless for somebody to work their whole life and then die and all of their possessions and their wealth gets given to another who didn't work for it and then squanders it away. But believers in Christ trust that God knows what you need, when you need it, how much you need it, and when you can go without. And that's really hard for us to give up. So New Year's, Eve, New Year's Eve is coming this Friday. And I don't know if you're a person who likes to make resolutions or not. I used to, and then I got so tired of not keeping them up that I thought, well, if I don't make a resolution, I don't fail. I don't really know if that's a good way to go about it. But, but I want to ask you, if you are one of those people that likes to make resolutions, what kind of man or woman are you going to be in this coming year, it seems a lot of resolutions tend to be about self-help or personal improvement or all these other ways that you can make yourself a better person. But the end result always seems to be, I can be a better person so that I can acquire more of those things that we listed. There's always this like ulterior motive of, of a payoff for me. Are you going to be one who trusts in yourself, wearing yourself out by your thoughts, dominated by the things you think you need? 
Or are you going to be one who understands that seeking God first will provide everything? Let's be a people of God whose relationship with him isn't reactionary or circumstantial. I think there's two key ways that we can do that. First, we need to surrender the need to have control. And that's something we do over and over and over and over again. I don't think you're ever going to stop surrendering control until Jesus finally comes back or he takes you home. It's good to get into the habit of doing that. That's part of what repenting is. Repenting is saying, Lord, I chose my own way and that was wrong. Your way is best. Will you forgive me? The second thing we can do is, is just enjoy everything that the Lord has given you. Let's not be stoic. I know I can tend to be that way, a little bit of a downer and some things, and, you know, like, oh, I have a good thing. I bet a bad thing's coming. The other shoe's going to drop, and, you know, or I shouldn't enjoy this too much because what if it makes me want the thing more than the Lord? Some of you need to chill out like myself. However, those things in the enjoyment of it does need to fuel thanksgiving, not greed. And that's a good litmus test. Does this thing that I am enjoying cause me to worship the Lord or cause me to look inward to find ways to get more of that thing? Let's be people that are surrendered to the Lord and people that are constantly thankful. Will you join me as we pray? Lord, thank you that a worship song written thousands of years ago is still applicable to our hearts today. Thank you, Lord, that you are the giver of good gifts and that we have been created to enjoy those things with you, alongside you. Pray that as we come out of uh, one of the most materialistic seasons of the entire year, you would remind our hearts of the goodness of being in relationship with you, that you would make it clear to us every day that every waking breath Every moment that we are alive is because of your good hand. Help us not forget that. Take things away from us if need be in order that we would remember that. But also help us to rest in Christ, knowing that we don't have to strive after these things. We don't have to work hard to gain these things by our own blood, sweat, and tears because you are a good provider. Help us to have faith in that, to trust in that to know that what you give is good, the amount you give is good, and when you give is good, that your wisdom is perfect. In your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me as we close with the song?